Romans 12, verses 9 through 13. The living word of God says to us this morning, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, and practicing hospitality. You may be seated. Let's pray and seek the Lord's help in enlightening these truths to our hearts and to this body. Gracious God and Father, we do come before your holy throne of grace with boldness because of and only by the person and the work of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And for that, Father, we praise your glorious, your eternal, your majestic name. Father, we desire to know him more, to know you more. We desire that his virtues within us by the work that he has done in our hearts would be magnified and multiplied to testify, Father, of your great love toward us, to testify of the work that Christ has done and is doing within us. Father, that the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against your church. So, Lord, we we come in humility, in brokenness of heart, seeking your spirit, Lord. Teach us, reveal to us these truths. Cause us to grow and relish and delight in them because they are all about Christ himself. So, Father, use this vessel and empower me, Father, by your spirit to clearly convey and proclaim these wonderful truths to both speaker and to hear. Give us, Lord, oh, give us ears to hear and hearts malleable, soft, fleshy hearts that are are submitted in willingness to receive from you. We ask this in, in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. I want to thank Pastor Emilio for his introduction in Second Peter 3, and I ask that you would keep that, bear that in mind as we go through this passage today. Because as I said, it is a, it is a great joy, it is a great burden as well to, to unpack these rich truths that we have. And if, if, we, if we follow the focus of Edmund Clowney's book on preaching Christ and all the scriptures, we're going to see that even in these very compact divine revelations, we're going to see Christ. And may the Spirit of God bring that to bear upon us today. And in these five short verses, Paul is revealing to us the source of these divine virtues through the person and the work of Christ, but also that these virtues are to be an ever-maturing reality within us and within his church. It becomes very obvious to it that these verses are, these virtues are a gift of God and from God, from whom every good thing comes. 
and are to be the manifestations from which those who are pursuing a life of holiness and living in and by the Spirit of Christ. Now, Paul establishes in, in the context of these verses today, and just as in any, many other writings, the chief of all virtues is love. Faith, hope, and love abide, these three abide, but love alone is eternal. And not just a theoretical or some abstract love. As we saw last time, this is a sincere love, an agape love, a truly divine love that comes from God, which has first been poured about and poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And John also puts this in such clear light in the first epistle in verse in chapter four, verse seven, he says that love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And this is that same agape love, finding its source and in, in fulfillment in, in Christ alone. This love is active. It is persistent in that it is centered fully upon the deepest needs of the recipient of that love. And it doesn't stop there. This love is expressed in doing whatever is necessary to fulfill, to fulfill those needs. Consider this with me. Is this not the love of God that has been manifested to us in and through Jesus Christ? Is this not what we see meticulously detailed and powerfully revealed in the first 11 chapters of doctrinal truth and throughout all biblical redemptive history? These great mercies of God manifesting his love and grace to the unlovely, to the unworthy, to the vile sinner who's not even aware of their own desperate need, being only worthy of death, but where God in sending his beloved, who in perfect humility and in similar fleshly likeness as we, learned perfect obedience through his suffering, revealing the glories of his Father, revealing the multiplicity of mercy, revealing this abundant grace and love to meet the utmost needs in his children, where Christ humbly submits while sweating great drops of blood to drink the cup of wrath and bear the crushing of his own father, taking upon himself the eternal fullness of our punishment for our sins, making full atonement and satisfaction and acquitting us of all guilt and declaring us righteous, freeing us from the dominion of our sin and indwelling us and sealing us with his own spirit. And then through the glorious power of his resurrection into newness of life, he raises us up with him, giving his redeemed all things new and life and in adopting us into his eternal family. For it is truly from him and through him and to him are all things. And truly to him be the glory forever and ever. In this, in this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And as we noticed last time that this love of Christ, just as we sang, is demonstrated in perfect humility. 
through perfect obedience and service on our behalf. He was effectively showing his preference for his own, that in his humble sacrifice, we are given an unworthy honor to be called joint heirs with him. His humility was so integrated and so expressed by his love that this too, as we see in chapter 12 and in all of scripture really, is to be our way of thinking about ourselves in serving one another. Now, considering this great and eternal love of God that is ours in Christ in varying degrees, we have here before us Paul's reminder and exhortation for our love to be Christ-like, to be genuine as Christ is. We now have the foundation and the enabling for all these remaining virtues that are ours in Christ. So let's, let's look at them in this light. Verse 9, the purity of our love hates and flees from evil while clinging to what is good. Verse 10, the devotion of our love is to one another in brotherly love, preferring one another in honor. And now we come today to Paul's first point in verse 11. The intensity of our love is not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit serving the Lord. Now, Paul struck the first note of this beautiful chord back in verse 8 where he says that in the diligence of those leading, they are to do it with zeal. And now in verse 11, he brings it to a greater intensity in these three exhortations with our focus to be in the Lord and in service to him. In the original language, it is saying, do not be slothful in our zeal. Don't be slow or forgetful. Don't be idle in your earnestness of Christ, in Christ-like love and duty. We must be careful not to be slothful or grow weary in earnest care for both our own soul in our spiritual service of worship to the Lord, but also in honoring and serving one another in the body. For this service is an outward manifestation of that genuine love deposited within our hearts. It is love that is not only expressed in words of encouragement and exhortation and even admonition, but it's brought to this experiential reality through works of service and helping and sacrificing. And in all aspects and forms is needed and prescribed. And this is what Paul emphasized to the believers in Ephesus in in chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Listen closely to this. Because even as in the church in Ephesus, we are also being equipped by the elders and pastors, the teachers appointed by the Lord with a purpose in maturing us all in Christ. And it says in Ephesians, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine or by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from who the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Romans 12:11 Paul is stating for both a, for for us both a negative and a positive aspect of the same thing these two phrases not lagging behind in diligence 
and fervent in spirit are actually clarifying and, and keeping the other from being misinterpreted or applied because both are related to serving the Lord. So if we look at the first half of this negative aspect, not lagging behind in diligence, we might incorrectly think that this means we should only be focused on work, being purely pragmatic, forgetting our emotions, only being concerned with our efficiency and our duty, just getting things accomplished. We may see laziness as a vice and and the greater virtue is just hard work. Now, this is true, and we are warned in Scripture very clearly not to be slothful or lazy. We are to guard against becoming like the sluggard who cherishes sleep, whose soul craves and yet gains nothing while he appears wise in his own eyes. And again in Proverbs, that being lazy and slothful not only hinders what is good, but it brings about poverty and opportunities for evil. So we have to be careful not to develop or have a lopsided view and just seeing laziness as a vice and a greater virtue as just hard work. But when we look at the positive side of being fervent in spirit, it balances our service. It complements a diligence in our work, in our practical and pragmatic work. We are to be fervent. Now, this is not some erratic emotional exuberance. Fervency absolutely involves our spirit. It involves our emotions. It involves our zeal for the Lord. This word fervent actually means to be boiling, to be boiling hot. And if I may use the words, even having a blissful satisfaction in and towards the things of Christ. Because there is a very tight coupling of fervency and spirit to that objective purpose of work in serving the Lord and members one another. There's a caution here, too, not to just be boiling, just full of passion without doing anything pragmatic or practical with the zeal. Again, it is a balance. One of doing, you could say, lots of work with lots of feeling, lots of work with godly emotion, lots of work with joy. And our zeal must be tempered, not boiling out of control, but mingled with common sense, just as we read in the first part of chapter 12, but making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. And with the zeal for Christ and not focusing on our own achievements and advancements and interests, there's some very clear warnings given to us in Scripture about performing our duties without zeal or joy. One very gripping one that we've discussed several times here in this body is is in the Old Testament from Deuteronomy 28, where Moses charged the Israelites in a prophetic warning about disobeying the Lord. And he's just been describing all the curses that will come upon them for disobedience. And he says in verse 46, they, all these curses, shall become a sign and a wonder on you and your descendants forever. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things. And Paul in the New Testament warns us in 1 Corinthians 15.58 about being slothful or only pragmatic. After he completes 57 verses on the resurrection of Christ, its, its order, its mystery, its ground for our own resurrection, 
he emphatically declares to us what kind of life we should be living because of our hope in Christ. And he says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. We also find in verse 11 the, the use of the word pneuma or spirit. And it's, it's often used for the Holy Spirit, but probably translated in, in your Bibles with a lowercase s. Now this can and does refer to the human spirit itself. And Paul uses the word pneuma interchangeably for the Holy Spirit and the human spirit. But in this particular context, he is referring to the human, the human spirit, but our spirits are to burn with zeal to be boiling over, and this can only be accomplished in and through the work of the Holy Spirit within us. Because we see in many passages, Old and New Testament alike, where the Holy Spirit is associated with fire. So there is a, a humble dependency here upon the believer, upon the means of grace, in praying for this in the Spirit to enable us with a fervency and zeal. How do we define the focus intended in this passage in serving the Lord? Paul's not telling us just to simply value having a, a, a passionate personality. For us to be saved by Jesus Christ and to have our names written in the Lamb's book of life is the greatest thing possible for anyone. It means that you have eternal life. You have the assurance that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. You have the promises that all things will work together for your good. And all of the trials and tribulations we will face, we will face, will produce in us an eternal weight and glory. But Paul is warning us against laziness and lukewarmness when it comes to having this this highest privilege in all the created universe to serve Jesus Christ. So how does this apply to us in service for Christ? Let me give you three brief points just to consider and study. We're not to serve to be people pleasers. And very inclusive aspect of our service to Christ is to serve one another in his body. Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom, brethren, Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now, in the service to one another, we're also to be to be aware of not just doing it to impress others or to be seen and recognized before men. This is what Paul tells us in Ephesians 6. He says, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men. We're not to be slaves seeking the approval as the motivation of our service, only to ask and search our hearts, is our true aim to please and honor Christ, not only in all that we say, but all that we do. Christ's approval for service outweighs, far outweighs any approval of man and brings an even greater conviction towards service when it's for his glory. Second point, just to consider, not to serve our appetites. 
Paul warns against those whose, whose appetites are really what he describes as their bellies are their God and master. We see this in Romans 16, 18, and also in Philippians 3, 19, where seeking after those temporal things, those temporal satisfactions of this world, just to satisfy some craving or appetite will only bring shame and destruction. How much more as a child of God who has been called by Christ to self-control, to purity of mind and chastity, are we to starve any of these cravings, any of these appetites that would allow for licentiousness or any type of self-indulgence or impure thoughts? Giving into any of these indulgences is saying that following any various appetite or indulgence, whatever it may be, Food, comfort, ease, pornography, a love of money. We're effectively saying to the Lord that these are of more value and I enjoy these even better than being with you. Our third point, not serving a new law. For those who are in Christ are no longer under the law, the old written code. We have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in the newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. In Romans 7, 6, it says, and that that is according to Romans 7, 6, and also in verse 4, that same chapter, it says, we have been made to die to the law and have been joined to one another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. No one can be justified by the works of the law, but now through Christ alone, we're able to serve a person. And the person is Jesus Christ. And it is because he rightfully and righteously stands as our law fulfiller, and no longer is he a law demander. So we don't have a new set of written codes, a new checklist that we're to perform and check off just to get through the day that we've met our requirements. But we now have a a person and a relationship with the Most High God. Yes, we, we do have duties, but it is serving Christ in these duties through the means of grace that he's provided. And Beloved, we are prone and apt to grow weary and discouraged and begin to faint in our spirits, our spirits. When the affirmation of the Lord's service is no longer uppermost in our thoughts and desires and our pursuits. Paul's exhortation to us in serving the Lord is to both stir us up against laziness and to regulate our zeal. If we're lacking in either of these, if we are imbalanced in some way, and this is only by examining our own hearts, We have access to the throne of grace. We can go to the Lord for our help in time of need to seek Christ's help. Give me more zeal. Give me more passion for the service of the Lord. Or help me in some way to be more practically helpful. What can I do to help brother and sister? Now, Paul's second point in verse 12 is, again, a a three beautiful notes of exhortation. And they have a very close relationship. And here we see in verse 12 is love's persistence, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, 
devoted to prayer. And it's, it's amazing to see what Paul, and note what he's doing here now, where he's taking our focus. Within the full context of these virtues and, and these expressions of, of dedicated service, he now begins to focus on the inner secrets of the believer and their lives. Paul's conviction of deepening the spiritual life is through our godly behavior in our relation to other people. And the rest of chapter 12 is, is devoted to instilling our duties for the body and toward the rest of the world. And he's shown that devout emotion is valuable if it drives the wheels of life in the body and our service to Christ, but not otherwise. And our growth in grace and sanctification will manifest itself in our homes, in our workplace, on the street corners, and especially in, in the church. And now Paul wants us to look inward at our hope, our steadfastness, our devotion. And we need to see how these three admonitions are closely related. Do we understand joy for the believer to be a Christian duty or more of a matter of temperament or circumstance? We are glad, I will confess, we are all glad when things go well. But do we regard our joy based on our disposition of our circumstances rather than the transforming work of God's truth in our minds and our hearts by faith? We need to quickly look back to verses 1 and 2 of this chapter just as a reminder of all the mercies we've received in salvation, but also that continuing work of transforming our minds with the realities of that promise of eternal inheritance that is ours in Christ. We must remind ourselves, we, we must preach to ourselves about the hope that awaits us in the presence of Christ. Remember Romans 15.4, a great verse to memorize. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. This is where true joy really lies, that even in our temporal sufferings, our temporal trials, our eternal hope is fixed and assured by the promise of God in Jesus Christ. It is this hope that is most effectual means of enabling us to bear up under and persevere through our afflictions and temptations and in joyful expectation of our future good, of that perfect righteousness that will be magnificently displayed in his presence. God's work within us has not been fully revealed yet or fully displayed. We are now in, in the hope of received salvation, but we are also in the not yet because our hope has not been fully revealed. For we hope for what we do not yet see, but we assuredly hope in Christ. Paul knows this well, and he wants us to know and rest assured in it as well. And this is why he so specifically says in Romans 5, if you want to turn there, Romans 5, Paul ties our hope and perseverance together so well for us, where he says the first five verses, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. 
And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So here we see that it's not just putting up with a trial. It's not just suffering so we get through it and it's over. No, it is, it is a steadfastness. It is an, an endurance with an awareness that any trial we face in life is ordained by God for the purpose to prove us, to purify us. It is to further mold us and, and shape our hearts. And hearts that may be hard, that they may become fleshy that they will be sensitive to the love of God and be transformed into the likeness of Christ. And at the same time, we must realize that the exacting demands of continuing to rejoice in hope and bear up under tribulations brings great relevance and is so dependent, listen, so dependent upon the degree to which we heed this next directive to be devoted in prayer, to be persistent in prayer, to be occupied in prayer. This simplistic but oh-so-glorious blessed means of grace that we now have through faith in Christ and his righteousness where we can, as we sang, enter the throne room of God. This is how patient endurance is conveyed to our hearts. When we come with, with childlike faith, communing with the person and source of our hope where he can truly fill our hearts with joy. Paul, as well as any other believer, knows that this does not come naturally. This is why Paul calls for a a devotion to it because it must be a conscious and deliberate effort of both the mind and the heart. We have many great examples of prayer in, in the scriptures from David who, who made it a deliberate action to seek the Father's face. Just a sample in Psalm 28, he says, To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Do not be deaf to me. For if you are silent to me, I will become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you for help. When I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary, blessed be the Lord because he has heard the voice of my supplication. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. Therefore, my heart exults and with my song, I shall thank him. So now we, we, we progress. We pass from the innermost region of our communion with the father the Lord, the Spirit, into a wider duty, a wider field of duties in our in our practical relationship to one another. And we come first to focus on the needs of the saints in practicing or pursuing hospitality. It's worth noting that the two expressions of love in this last verse will invade the privacy of the Christian. Okay? This privacy that we see so highly valued in our self-centered, self-indulgent society around us, where we pull into our garage, shut the garage, and there we exist. So the third and final point of Paul's exhortation 
tells us love's generosity will contribute to the needs of the saints, will practice hospitality. And Paul is using in this verse a very familiar verb form from the word for fellowship, koinonia. However, thankfully, in, in the in ASB, it provides us with a very accurate translation for the Greek koinoneo. It's to, to be contributing, to be distributing to the needs, but also to cause others to partake with us. You see, Paul is not exhorting just to have meals of fellowship one another with the saints, but he's addressing relative material matters of need, food, clothing, housing. In his time, it was very dangerous, very limited to travel and to visit brothers and sisters. And in our day, transportation, gas, car repair, those type of things, very practical needs. So this contributing is invading in a glorious way, invading the privacy of the believer in their wallets and their homes so that these things are to be shared with others. And we have all faced hard times, whether in finances or basic needs in one form or another, and it is in times like these that the love of the brethren is needed more than ever. We see in Acts 4 that the impacts of persecution on the early church were a political tension, religious persecution, all the consequences of their faithfulness to Christ cost many saints their jobs, their homes, their friends, even their own lives. And we saw the impacts and results of this in our recent study from Pastor Emilio in Hebrews 10, 32, 34. And we know, brothers and sisters, if we just watch 30 minutes of the news, we know what's coming. We know what's ahead. So our taking part in contributing to the needs of the saints is to fundamentally regard them as your own because we are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. We have or should have the same interest towards Christ and one another's needs. And through the exercise of our common faith and looking to Christ, we will be enabled, as James says, that to give what is necessary to those who are without clothing and food rather than some superficial best wish and prayer and send them on their way. We're, we're living in a time of, of great prosperity and a society that loves things and possessions. And how we handle our money as believers, our possessions, is of great importance to the Lord. We see in many passages of, of promises and warnings and commandments regarding wealth. Jesus himself rebuked those who specifically focused on having great wealth, building bigger barns, hoarding possessions, gaining the whole world and losing their soul. So how we handle our money and possessions is a clear barometer of how deeply we trust God and how much we truly treasure Christ. For where our treasure is, that's where our heart will be also. We are to be faithful and wise stewards, holding loosely all that the Father has given us and understanding that all these things are truly from him. And he has the priority as to where these things should be given and shared and used to meet one another's needs. Providing for our families is, according to Scripture, our our immediate families is of utmost importance. But the next level of joyful responsibility and opportunity for the believers toward the needs of the body. 
But what does this mean to practice or practice or pursue hospitality? It's interesting. Christ himself speaks to us very clearly about this in Matthew 10. And he summarizes it very well later in the chapter. In verses 9 to 11, he's talking to the disciples as they were being sent out by twos. And he says, do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his support. And whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay at his house until you leave that city. And then in verse 40, he, he, he summarizes it and brings it to bear, to emphasis. And he says, he who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. And what Christ is getting at here is simply that hospitality for the sake of Christ welcomes God. The Lord takes it even further in Matthew 24 where he shows that hospitality is one of the things that he counts at Judgment Day as evidence for our love for Christ. Where we open our home to him even as he is represented in a stranger and welcome both in honor. Peter makes hospitality a crucial part of our lives, even in these last days where he says in chapter 4, 7 to 9, that believers are to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. It is also a qualification for eldership in the church, where an overseer must be hospitable, where people are free to come and go as needed. But what what prevents us from giving? What prevents us or hinders us from showing hospitality? Are we, are we dealing with something or something standing in our way? And I, I want to give some brief just thoughts and considerations. These are, these are no accusations by any means, but just considering these scriptures. Maybe why we don't give as we ought or some reasons we struggle with hospitality. One, we may be unaware. You may have never thought about giving money regularly to the church or to those in need. It is a part of our spiritual service of worship. And we should be aware as, as members of the church, as members of a body, and be willing to contribute to the needs around us. In Acts 4, we see that all the brothers and sisters had things in common. Could it be just negligence? We may know this, this is the Christian thing to do. I should be contributing or helping but we just never get around to it we don't make it a priority we don't give it much thought but we should be very thoughtful very intentional in our giving according to first corinthians 16 maybe it's selfishness or greed do we try to hang on to things and and groan inwardly when we consider giving selfishness and greed will always think of things we could have if we didn't give or donate. This requires, too, just as any of these, a new heart to know the joy and blessing in giving rather than receive and hold on to. We see this in Luke 14 and Acts 11. Or is it a fear? Do we fear that we may not have something or won't have what we need in the future? Try to second-guess God. Keep us focused on the on the fallout of not having what we we might need. And the only answer to this fear is found in the promises and trust in Christ for all things. Matthew six twenty six. 
The struggles with hospitality actually come from a variety of fears as well. Whether we fear that people may stay at our house too long, they may stay for an extended period of time, we might open our house to a family with kids and something may happen to something we treasure, something may get damaged, or we may think that we don't have a house that's really very nice or nice furnishings. We can come up with a number of fears and excuses. But as believers in Christ, we shouldn't be hanging on to these these reasons and fears. But these, again, are best dealt with as we humbly submit ourselves to the examining and freeing power of the Word of God. It is, again, these wondrous mercies of God that are new every morning in Christ. And in Romans eight thirty one and 32, we read that, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he he not also with him freely give us all things? And Paul brings this to an application in Philippians 4.19, and he says, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And this is exercised and applied in and through his body. Again, in 2 Corinthians 9.8, And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that have, always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. He knows well our needs, and he is able, fully able to provide an abundant supply. So the rewards of of joyful contribution to the needs of the saints and pursuing hospitality to the saints and strangers will not only help alleviate the suffering of brothers and sisters, it's going to result in more thanksgiving to God. It'll display the genuine love in our hearts to the glory of God. And it both affirms and confirms our love to God and it According to scripture, it stores up treasures, eternal treasures in heaven. Now, at Heritage Grace, many, if not all, of these virtues are present and active in various degrees and manifestations in our hearts, our lives, our homes, not lagging behind, being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, even though going through some very severe tribulations and trials, being quick and devoted to intercession and having a great compassion and contributing to the needs of the saints, opening our homes to share and care for one another. But I want to leave us with two more specific exhortations from Paul to the church in Thessalonica where they were experiencing and and living out these virtues, these realities in their church. And these exhortations myself for all of us. He says in First Thessalonians 4, Finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. And then in verse 10, Now as to the love of the brethren, You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. 
For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for the revelation of your word and these virtues to us that are ours in Christ. Father, we humbly pray and ask that these will be manifested more and more, that we would strive in in zeal, in helps, in prayer, Lord, in giving, in serving and providing one to another more and more that we would excel because of who you are. Lord, where there is or may be imbalance in zeal or practicality, Father, we, we humbly seek you and ask that you would bring the balance, that the value in Christ in our hearts and our lives would grow more and more as we behold him, as we take advantage, Father, of, of every means of grace in prayer, in reading, in meditating, in studying your word and gathering as your children to worship you as we fellowship over your word and helping one another. Father, may these virtues, may these realities grow and excel in our lives to your glory, to your praise, to your honor. In Jesus' holy name, amen.